It's another edition of Hockey Mets. I'm your host, Mike Silva, here on this Sunday, April the 24th. Of course, you go to the show all the time at MetsMorizeOnline.com. Go to the link for Talking Mets. Go to the iTunes store. You can download the latest episode. If you want to send me a tweet, at Mike Silva Media. Go to my personal website. Send me a personal note, MikeSilvaMedia.com. Hope everybody's doing well. Great show ahead. Jeff Passan, the Yahoo Sports lead baseball writer, just recently wrote a book called The Arm, Inside the Billion-Dollar Mystery of the Most Valuable Commodity in Sports. He'll join me in just a little bit. Jeff basically went in and did the most extensive research that anyone's ever done on Tommy John surgery. Why pitchers get hurt, talk to Sandy Koufax of all people. He might be the last person in the world, last reporter to talk to Sandy Koufax. That's the white whale. If you're any kind of sports reporter, getting Sandy Koufax to talk on record to you or talk to you at all in general, uh, went and really did a very comprehensive book. I had a chance to read it. I very highly recommend it. Even got all the way uh, down into the amateur level to see what's going on with young kids as they grow up uh, as prospects in this world of the Internet where everybody's a prospect when they start throwing a baseball. Uh, so we're going to talk to Jeff, get a feel of, and especially a topic that's near and dear to Mets fans' hearts, with Zach Wheeler and Matt Harvey and Josh, Josh Edgen and, and obviously all these young pitchers uh, with the risks that come with how hard they throw. Maybe there's some uh, indication of, of how you could prevent Tommy John surgery. So Jeff will join me in a little bit. Of course, you guys are all feeling really good because putting out the Q&A over at MetsMorizedOnline.com, and all it is is it's, it's crickets. Last couple of weeks, I was getting comments and questions and a lot of stuff to sink my teeth into. And today, I put it up, and I'm like, everybody's, oh, you know, they're happy, and I'm happy, too, that Jacob DeGrom's son is doing well. But it's like, great, 7-2 road trip, everything's great. The Nationals and the fact that you know, Bryce Harper hit another home run today, that's not really bothering even bothering anyone, even though that the Nationals continue to win. It's, they're not really bothering you. So everything's great. That's what a 7-2 and road trip will do. And the Mets are finally starting to take shape as a team. And what is this team all about? So it's really interesting because you don't know if this road trip against a couple of bad teams and an American League opponent in Cleveland, they're not bad. We don't know what Cleveland's going to be. They've had some good years. They didn't have such a great year last year. They've got some good arms. Uh, they have certainly a lot more offense than this Braves team you saw this last weekend and, and the, the Phillies as well, even though they play in that band box. But the Philadelphia and that ballpark, and maybe that's – payback for all those horror shows that 2007-2008 brought about. But even other than 2007, the Mets have really played well in Citizens Bank Park, even when the the Phillies were were on their run. So maybe I shouldn't really say that. But maybe this is payback for what happened in the collapses of 07 and 08, where the Mets now pretty much own Citizens Bank Park. Maybe they could transfer that park and trade them for City Field and just put it in, in Flushing, Queens. But anyway... Uh, what we've seen over the last 10 days, now that the Mets have taken full hold and, and, and they've, they've come back, they're going to be coming back home for another homestand and hopefully continue the, the momentum, is this the team that we're going to see in 2016? Because it's a little bit different than I think the, ver- the, 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 the variety we saw last year. Now, again, we go back, and let's not rehash it, we had two separate seasons last year. But this is a team, as I said, that's going to win basically by a bullying people, home runs. They're going to get walks and home runs. They're not going to bunt. They're not going to steal bases. They're not going to do hit and run. 
So when they bludgeon you, and they blood, and they've bludgeoned some teams on this trip with home run after home run back to back in three or four consecutive games. You know Neil Walker doing his best uh, impression of Bryce Harper and, and and trying to make everybody forget Daniel Murphy, even though Daniel Murphy's been hitting very well in Washington. Is this the variation of the Mets that we're going to see? So right now there's a lot to be happy about. The team in general, ever since they la- they left uh, New York, is hitting. Everybody's pretty much significantly above league average right now in terms of offense, offense except for Darno and and Duda, and I think that'll 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 work itself out. You got guys like Juan Lagares and Alejandro Diaz coming off the bench making contributions. Now Flores hasn't gotten into it, and I think part of that is that he's not playing. But you have a good backup catcher in Plawicki. I, th- I think you're all set there. The starting pitching has shown flashes, but outside of Syndergaard, nobody has. Wowed you. We know, all know what's going on with Harvey. Cologne is Cologne. I think you, you know what you're going to get out of a fifth starter. When he stinks, he's going to stink, but he's going to keep you in most games. DeGrom was good after the layoff today, but he wasn't dominant. Matz has been good ever since his first stinker. But, no, but these guys haven't really gotten into a groove other than Syndergaard. So there's a lot of upside there, and that's good. That's good to, to, to see that the Mets are now 10-7, and seven, and the starting pitching hasn't really even come into what you would expect its own. The bullpen is good. Now, I know Familia was shaky again today. And let me tell you something. Didn't Familia over the last, probably the whole season, but especially this road trip, didn't he bring shades of John Franco to you? A lot of weak ground balls that couldn't make plays on, little bleeders, getting behind a couple of hitters, hitters laying off his sinker. And that's something that is to be looked at. Is there a scouting report out now, ever since the World Series, maybe because he was on a national stage, that everybody's now taking a closer look and saying, well, how do I I hit this guy? I I can't hit, uh, you know, his sinker that just goes down. You know, you can't hit it. So they're laying off of it, trying to get him to come up with his pitches. And when you come up with your pitches, they're going to smack it. You saw Frank Cord do that. You saw Kelly Johnson do that. But most of the contact today outside of, some line drives that you by those those two players I just mentioned, which is weak ground balls. And he got out of the, the inning and he got a save even though he let up a run. So it's something to look for. It's familiar, much more hittable because against good teams, not the Braves. Something to, to certainly be concerned about. But Addison Reed has pitched well. Hansel Robles, who I always feel is a little bit of a sweaty situation, is pitching well. Jim Henderson's making his contribution. You got the lefty and Jerry Blevins. Antonio Bastardo has looked great. Uh, he hasn't even really, uh, uh, you know, historically he walks a lot of, of batters, and he hasn't done that right now. Uh, and then you court, you've got Logan Verrett, who's now back in, in, in the bullpen, and, and who knows what kind of role he's going to play, but he very well could be a starter right now. Hasn't given up a run in two starts. So all that's good. Now here's the thing. I was doing some research because the Mets are starting to remind me if the offense, which still is not hitting with runners in scoring position, the offense is reminding me, the first team that came to my mind about what the Mets were resembling, and forget the pitching and the bullpen, because totally different team, and that's what this team is, is going to ultimately win or lose on, of those two components. But if you remember being in New York, even though you're all Mets fans that are listening to the show, if you're not, I mean, great, welcome, but you're all probably Mets fans listening to the show. The Yankees in 2011 and 2012, the teams that lost to Detroit in the playoffs and got swept embarrassingly in 2012, those are the teams that all of a sudden you were hearing a lot of chatter from fans and the media that they're hitting too many home runs and they can't execute and they can't get runners in unless they hit the three-run bomb. 
And you're starting to see a little bit of that with this Mets team. And I was thinking about that because what happens when you don't play in Philadelphia or you don't play against second-tier pitchers and back into the rotation pitchers? Because if you face Max Scherzer, I don't know how many home runs you're going to get. I don't know how many opportunities you're going to get to drive the ball. You're going to have to maybe with two strikes make a little bit more contact or move runners along or certainly cut down on the strikeouts. I mean, there was one game on the road trip the Mets struck out about 17 times against Phillies pitchers. I mean, and that's not the top pitching in the league. The Phillies are a little bit better than everybody expected, but these are not the top pitchers in the league. So what does this, what does this mean for the Mets uh, offense? What does it mean for the Mets offense? What does it mean for this team if this is what they are? And again, it's a very small sample size. I wound up looking and doing a little bit of research, and I came across an article, and it's an old article from 2009. And this is just something to think about. I'm not saying I subscribe that the Mets are in trouble. I'm not trying to put a, a damper on anything they did this week. The last 10 days have been great. They got themselves back to where everybody expected them to be after really a bad start to the season in Kansas City in the homestand. But Monty, oh, geez, what's this guy's name? Uh, you know what? It doesn't really matter. I, I, should, I should really – I wrote his name down, uh, but I can't, even, uh, I can't even read my own handwriting. But anyway, in Forbes in 2009, and let me get the guy's let me get the guy's name. I really shouldn't do that. Monty Burke. I just wrote his name down. I can't read my own my scribble here on the on the paper. Monty Burke at Forbes wrote back in July of 2009 why big hitting teams don't win. Now you know let's. This goes back to when the Yankees were were leading everything in the world in home runs, and the Yankees wound up winning the World Series later that year. So this article already gets debunked a little bit. Uh, but when you start to look, he cites a lot of, historically, a lot of the big home run teams did not win the World Series. Now, here's some teams he cites, the 1995 Cleveland Indians, the 1996 Baltimore Orioles, the 1997 Seattle Mariners. You look at the Texas Rangers teams from the early 2000s with Alex Rodriguez. The White Sox actually had a couple of teams with Jermaine Dye and, and, and uh, Paul Konerko and, and Jim Tomei that actually hit a lot of home runs but didn't win anything. It was the team in 2005 that was more of a contact team. It was a little bit more of a, a old-school, you know, pre-steroid era, let's say, type of team that actually won the World Series. So he cites about how the team that hits the most home runs really doesn't win the World Series. Now, you got some other teams in recent history that – have hit a ton of home runs, led the league, and, and I'll, I'll read them off to you. Last year, the Toronto Blue Jays pretty much almost made the World Series. Who knows what would have happened if they had made it. You have Colorado and Baltimore and the Los Angeles Dodgers. I mean, you saw them as the Mets played them. Uh, tough team, hits a lot of home runs. The, the, the Brewers in recent years, those playoff team Brewers hit home runs. And, of course, the Yankees in 2012 and 2011. But a lot of the, none of these teams, and, and think back to even the Braves when they won the division in 2013, the knock on them was that they were a home run or nothing team. You had guys like Hayward and Upton and, uh, and Freddie Freeman. I mean, just a team that would just hit a lot of home runs. But if they weren't getting their, uh, their home run streak on, they didn't score and they were easy to beat. Now, Sandy Alderson has gone on record, and he, he said this while they were in the rebuilding process, that if you look at it statistically, in games that teams hit home runs, more than likely that team is going to win. You've had a couple of runners on base. You had a three-run home run, or like Curtis Granderson did on Friday night. You hit a grand slam. You put a four spot up on the board. It just 
changes the dynamic of the game. It takes the wind out of the sails of the other team. It puts a crooked number on the board. You can't put four runs up with two or three singles. You need a multiple hits. So you need everybody. You need the Congo line to keep going. So there's nothing wrong with home runs, but you need to have a balance. And right now the Mets offense is not balanced because they're not really hitting. Although today was a good start where you had the Conforto double. You had the sacrifice fly by Duda. You had the good start in the first inning with uh, the Conforto sacrifice fly and the, and the two singles by Granderson and Cabrera to get things going. So they, they, they are starting to show signs of that. They had a big hit, I believe, by, by Cabrera last night uh, before they got the, to the eighth, eighth run. Uh, it was Ligaris out there and, and, and you know, his triple. So you had some, some tack on runs that weren't home runs. But it was Cabrera and Walker with the home runs that really put the thing out of reach if you think about last night's Saturday, Saturday night's game. So all I'm saying is this. There is a certain feel that this team is falling into that same type of category as some of those teams I've mentioned. And, and we've seen it here in New York where the Yankees in 2012 in the playoffs hit 154 against Detroit in that uh, four-game sweep. Again, you're facing Justin Verlander and Annabelle Sanchez, and anything could, could happen in a short series. It's never nothing is ever going to be absolute because you could face, you could be the St. Louis Cardinals of the eighties and you saw they've lost uh, in, in series that they may, may have won. And that was a team that was known for getting runners on base contact, stolen bases. There's, there's no one way to win. And, and certainly if you start to hear fans complain and you very well may, if the Mets go back to not hitting with runners in scoring position and they come back to city field and some of those home runs that were making the, the bleachers in citizens bank park and, and, and maybe Cleveland, are long outs in City Field, this will come up. But it's something to look for. But overall, you have to feel good. Right now, you're not hitting on all cylinders. You still have a couple of hitters that need to get going in, in Darno and Duda. I think Duda's very streaky and, and, and hasn't really got his groove yet. Harvey's looked awful. He was a little bit better on Friday, but he's pretty much been a fifth starter at best. And he's a below-league average pitcher right now. Uh, Mats has been better, but he had a stinker, so he could start getting going. Uh, Cologne, and, and like I said, it's been really Syndergaard that's really been more than what you could have expected. And DeGrom, even his first start, I think, again, I think you got a little bit upside still with the rotation. They're not yet where they need to be. And maybe you're going to need them because there's going to be times if, if, if this team goes into a funk and they're a home run hitting team and the home runs aren't flying, they may need to win a couple of 2-1 games or, or one nothing game or something like that. And then, of course, the bullpen, that to me is the biggest difference. And I'll tell you, the, forget Familia because I think he'll be all right. I, I think it's just something to watch a little bit about whether they're laying off on, on, on that sinker that he has going on. Uh, but the up-the-middle defense has been outstanding. I have to say, Walker and Cabrera. Cabrera, I know the defensive metrics don't, don't bear it out, but Cabrera has been really good at, at, at shortstop. Made a bit of a bonehead play today. He should have went for the double play. But he's steady over there. He makes the plays he's got to make. He has good range going back. I, again, I know that uh, from a, a defensive standpoint, a lot of this goes back to positioning. That's all he asks for is to make the play, turn the double play. It makes such a difference out there. You have no idea. It makes such a difference. So, uh, you know, a lot of things to be excited about. A lot of Mets baseball coming up this week as they start a homestand. They have the, the Reds, the Giants, the Braves. They have a chance to – start to move a little bit further away from 500 before they have a West Coast trip, which will be a really big test. And we'll be talking about that uh, very shortly as the Mets go to the West Coast after this homestand. 
that comes up this week. So anyway, uh, that's where we are. That's kind of the state of the union of where the New York Mets are. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, Jeff Passan of Yahoo Sports, the lead baseball columnist, will join me. He's going to talk about his uh, new book, The Arm, Inside the Billion-Dollar Mystery of the Most Valuable Commodity in Sports. He, uh, he did a great job, a lot of research, and I think it's a really interesting piece uh, that we could uh, we could bring to Mets fans, especially because of what's been going on with the team with all the injuries and whatnot. And, and look, if you're a parent out there that has an athlete, it's certainly an athlete that may have some aspirations, even if it's to get a scholarship and go to college, you may want to take a listen and take a read on this because you want to make sure your, uh, your son or daughter's arm, depending on what the sport they play, keep it healthy, especially at a young age when they're developing and growing. So let's take a quick break. When we come back, Jeff Passon of Yahoo Sports, an author of The Arm, will be joining me. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast here at MetsmerizedOnline.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. We'll be right back. And he drives one deep to right field. Back goes Borges looking up, and it's out of here! David Wright does it again at Citizens Bank Park, this time going oppo to give the Mets the early 1-0 lead. And the curveball drilled to deep left field. Back goes Goodell, who takes a look, and it's out of here! Yoannis Cespedes with a three-run homer. His fourth home run of the year, and the Mets, twice on 0-2 breaking balls, have gone deep. And it's given them a 5-0 lead. That's drilled deep right field, down the line. That ball is out of here. Neil Walker gets it out of the ballpark in about a second and a half. His seventh home run of the season. And the Mets now lead 6-2. What a bullet. And Curtis drills one deep right field. Back toward the corner. It's out of here! Grand slam, Curtis Granderson! The 2016 Mets are on a power surge, and you don't want to miss a beat. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of Talking Mets. Hear me give you an unbiased and passionate opinion of the latest happenings with the team. Guests include beat writers, journalists, influential bloggers, as well as former and current players. Check out the latest shows and archive at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Talking Mets podcast on MetsmerizedOnline.com. I'm joined by Yahoo Baseball columnist Jeff Passan. You all know him, of course, uh, but you should check out his new book, The Arm, Inside This Billion-Dollar Mystery of the Most Valuable Commodity in Sports. It's by HarperCollins. You can follow Jeff on Twitter, at Jeff Passan. Jeff, thanks for uh, joining us. How are you? Doing great, Mike. How are you? Can't complain. Great book, great work. Um, now, I've heard you on other programs, Jeff. I know this project took a couple of years. Any of my friends that have either tried to write books, they were successful or they failed, they just talk about the process. Looking back now, you've had a chance to do interviews, get some feedback. Was it worth it after the, 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 all the time you spent? And more importantly, do you feel we're any closer based on your research to making progress on what you refer to as the epidemic of arm injuries? God, I hope it was worth it. Uh... <laughs> You know, you spend as much time as I did uh, on this, and uh, you wanted to have some kind of an impact. And I'd like to think that this is going to, just based on, on the feedback so far and based on what people have said and based on reviews and all those things. I mean, it seems like people think this can be an important book, and that was the goal. You know, uh, I, I wanted to understand 
the pitching arm better, and I definitely do. Uh, I also wanted to solve the the mystery of what is causing Tommy John surgeries. Uh, I definitely did not, but I think what this does is is it gives people a better sense of what's really going on out there, uh, the challenges uh, ahead, and uh, the the issues, especially at the youth level, that uh, we can do something about while technology helps us catch up with the rest of the stuff uh, at the higher levels. This may sound corny, but and again, I I don't I failed my biology regions three times, so I, I know nothing about the the human body. But I was thinking about pitchers and and all the things that teams and pitching coaches try to do, and nobody really knows. And and I bought a car back in 2012, brand new. Four months in, uh, the car overheats, minor part, part of the warranty needs to be replaced. Just over 100,000 miles, there was a recall. The engine went. My, I needed a brand-new engine. Uh, it was a brand-new car. I took care of it. I put all the oil that you needed in it, synthetic oil, spent money, go to the dealer, spent more money to make sure that all of that did not happen. And basically, I probably got a lemon. And I said to myself as I'm going through all this, I'm like, geez, this is like the, 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 the defect pitcher that everybody says. I did all the things that I needed to do, but here I am. The guy's got Tommy John surgery, and, it's not, and he is not feeling, filling his potential. Kind of corny, but that's what I thought about as I was going through your book. Yeah, and look, there are, there are guys who definitely have uh, genetic disadvantages and are going to be much likelier to break down than others. Um, I don't know who those guys are and uh, doctors don't. And we can't, you know, we can't look in through x-ray vision to see uh, when a guy's throwing a pitch, how the tensile strength and his uh, ulnar collateral ligament uh, is going to hold up. Uh, what we can do, though, is focus on uh, the the number of pitches that are thrown when when guys are young. And by doing that, I think we we give everybody a much better opportunity not to be a lemon uh, when they reach the age of maturity. Um, so many of these injuries happen when we're really young. And I don't think we realize just how young it starts. There was a study in Japan recently uh, of 9 to 12-year-old kids. And uh, it was a small sample. There were only, I think, 63 kids in the study. So uh, this, isn't, this isn't indicative of, of how the rest of society is. But uh, 43% of the kids in the study, which was of baseball players, have ulnar collateral ligament damage. And these are 9 to 12-year-olds. And when it's a number as big as 43%, it's not saying that everybody out there who's young has UCL damage. It's saying that it starts this young, and it certainly can start at that young of an age, and I don't think people recognize that. So when guys in the big leagues are blowing out, it's not always because of what they're doing in the big leagues. It's not always because you just have a lemon. It's because uh, this started a long time ago, and it was an inevitability that it was going to happen at some point, and it just so happens that it's in the minor leagues or the big leagues. It's a great point, and I think back, and look, I grew up around kids. Who, some played college ball you know, from the streets of Brooklyn. We didn't have all the stuff that you have today, and I'm not an old guy. I'm in my late 30s, but the world has changed. 
And I found it very interesting reading the part of the book about Perfect Game and the parents of some of the young kids that you followed around. As a father, what was your takeaway uh, of that culture? Not just the Perfect Game itself, but uh, the, how the parents are managing the kids. And there was a certain amount of that old saying trophy kids uh, component to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I find it gross, to be honest. Um, I think that parents have stars in their eyes, and I think that companies out there, whether it's Perfect Game or it's not just Perfect Game, I mean, there are a bunch of these places that put on tournaments and give kids, 10- and 11-year-old kids, rings for winning tournaments. And it's just unseemly. And it is it is so very too much too soon in every possible way um and and the thing is and i listen i know a lot of people are going to disagree with me on this and and that's fine and but i have talked with players uh i have talked with personnel people uh, in front offices uh, gms and every one of them to a man says i'm not crazy when i say this uh, I think there needs to be less emphasis on competition in baseball at a very young age. And I, I am not anti-competition. I, I think competition is a is a wonderful thing. It is the thing I, as an adult, enjoy the most about about sports. I, like, I like competing. I like playing basketball with my friends and beating them. I, you know, whatever it may be, golf, tennis. Uh, I'm not playing baseball anymore, but you know, the one-on-one in baseball was awesome. Uh, with kids, when you're playing nine-year-olds, does it really matter if you're winning? I mean, it's nice. Don't get me wrong, but the incentives that are in place to win just are not worth it. And when you're balancing the ability to get a a fake gold ring for a child versus his health, that's a no-brainer to me. But it's something that again and again coaches and parents sacrifice. I mean, in my book, you you know, you see just in Chapter 2, very well-intentioned parents put their kid out there twice in one day. Uh, you know, I, I just looked at perfect games last couple of tournaments for 11-year-olds, and they have kids pitching three times in two days, four times in three days. Uh, you know, they don't list pitch counts, but uh, back-to-back days with 10 innings, kids can't be throwing any less than 100 pitches. Uh, and it's, you know, it's bad. Uh, and and this is the culture that is causing so much of this. And we're sitting here watching it happen and not doing anything about it. We're you know, the irresponsible worse, ones. You know, I, I, I've talked to agents who, who advise, and, and I've watched college baseball. Uh, they don't care, the coaches. And look, there's more stakes about winning and competition there, but they don't, they, they'll pitch pitchers you know, until their arm falls off because obviously they have the job to win. I find the college ranks, at least in my opinion, and you know more than I, to be more egregious. Well, here's the difference, though. Uh, in college, your body is at least like an adult body. And I'm not saying that they are, they are capable of handling 140 or 150 pitches. Uh, but I think you have a better chance when your body is fully developed uh, to, to survive that. And 
and look, the the difference too is that if you are in college, I feel like you have uh, at least a little more understanding of what free will is, and you can speak up. Uh, and if you speak up against your coach, of course, you run the risk of uh, losing a scholarship or something along those lines. So there are consequences. But uh, kids, kids to me are are they they are not in control of their own uh, of their own situation of their own destiny, and uh, they are being puppeteered by parents and by coaches uh, in college and e- even late in high school. I mean, we've we've seen the last couple of days. You know, that kid in Illinois who threw 167 pitches in a high school game. Uh, First-round pick uh, yesterday who uh, threw, hundred, I think, 32 pitches in 10 and two-thirds innings in a college game. This happens again and again. I just sit here and say, we know this. Like, why is this still going on? Why? When we know that with kids and with younger pitchers, this is not the right way to do things. I'm joined by uh, Jeff Passan, Yahoo Baseball columnist. Uh, his new book, The Arm Inside, uh, The Billion-Dollar Mystery of the Most Valuable Commodity in Sports. Jeff, here's something to think about. Are you going to go down as the last reporter to speak to Sandy Koufax? Because he might live another 30, 40, 50, 60 years. I don't know if he's going to grant any interviews. I was totally shocked when you grabbed him for the book. Great work on that. Totally shocked. Thank you. I was totally shocked, too. It was pretty much the coolest day of my life. Uh, and just hearing hearing stories from him was uh, was pretty fascinating. Not just because he doesn't he doesn't generally talk with media or do one on one interviews, but uh, the perspective of older ball players, I think, is always very interesting and appreciated because the game has changed so much. And think about it: what it was like when Sandy Koufax was pitching. He was he was telling me they they brought six hundred players to camp every spring. 600 players because they knew guys' arms were going to go down and it was turned into like this Darwinian survival of the fittest uh, situation where if you could last, then you would be a big league pitcher and uh, we're going to run your arm roughshod and keep pushing you and uh, end up with Sandy Koufax done at 30 years old and Don Drysdale done at 32 years old and Carl Spooner, for all intents and purposes, done at 25 years old. And, uh, you know, the the guys who made it to 30 were the lucky ones. And so hearing him talk about this uh, and and talk wistfully about it, like I think he I think he appreciated what he was able to do uh, was was really a fascinating thing. One of the cooler parts, I thought, at least if, if I were in your shoes, was you describing how you sat on actually a Tommy John surgery. Todd Coffey was, was, was the, earlier in the book. Uh, you know, fans think of this like an oil change. Now, oh, go get your elbow tuned up. And, and I'm, I'm reading in, in full depth, and I know that was a, a unique surgery, Todd Coffey's, but by far it's not the gimme, the layup that the average fan thinks it is. And what's even more amazing was the precision of the doctor. It gave me an appreciation for the surgeon because here they are listening to music, you know, a couple of hours to do a Tommy John surgery. Like you and I doing yard work, these guys are working on someone's livelihood. It, to me, the whole thing was uh, was pretty amazing. It must have been amazing for you too. 
It was. It was. I, I tell people to ask. It was probably the coolest four hours of reporting that I've ever done. And I, uh, you know, I'd seen, I'd seen uh, blood and muscle and all that sort of gory stuff before uh, on another reporting trip. So I was not thrown by that. Uh, I, I, I was taken by it, frankly, uh, by seeing. Uh, the the precision, like you said, of what Neil Elitrash, uh, the surgeon, did with Todd Coffee, and I don't want to give too much away here, but I felt like that that first chapter uh, that it was important to put that as the first chapter because I think it illustrates the uh, the the tension and uh, the difficulty and all of the things that this entails, and it it feels like. I, I don't know if it does feel like it. I tried to make it feel like an episode of like a medical drama because uh, that's what it felt like when I was in there. Like, oh my God, is this going to work? Uh, you know, there was nothing manufactured there. It was an intense surgery. And uh, I think there were points at which people were afraid that things were going to go sideways. What, any kind of project of this magnitude you, you, you're around baseball. You know a ton about baseball. You, you probably get tired of some of the, the repetitiveness of the game, but think with a project like this, you came away with something that you didn't know or that surprised you or maybe that aha moment. Was there anything like that, any event, obviously other than maybe the fact that you were able to grab the white whale and Sandy Koufax? I think it was two things. I think, one, I didn't realize how screwed up the youth culture is in baseball, and, and that became – evident the more time I looked into it. Uh, and second, I definitely did not understand what happens in between the day you have Tommy John surgery and the day you're back on the mound. Um, those are the two days that we know of uh, as fans and that we see all the time. And uh, I, I, um, I chronicled the other, you know, in, in this case, you know, 800-something days of Daniel Hudson and uh, tried to show what life is like for for athletes who have their livelihood taken away. And it's not fun. It's it's a very human story with uh, triumphs and failures and uh, emotions and fear and uh, all of the things that make us what we are. One last thing before I let you go. I think uh, Dr. Job, who started all of this, uh, in my opinion, underrated. I know we hear about Dr. James Andrews and all the great surgeons today, but reading about the Tommy John surgery, again, that was like Frankenstein, uh, Frankenstein's lab, the atrophy that John had after because, you know, again, it was all learning on the job. Uh, Dr. Job may be a little underrated or, or forgotten maybe because of all the great surgeons for today and because sometimes – in the modern culture, we don't always embrace the past or appreciate history. Yeah, I think that's also just part of, you know, our age. I'm in my mid-30s uh, as well. And I think most people, if you ask them orthopedist, Andrews is obvious, the obvious one because he's been the guy for probably the last 15 years. So before that, though, Frank Job was a, as, as big a name, if not bigger, in sports medicine uh, than James Andrews was at his peak. And uh, the the stuff he did, it wasn't just the, the Tommy John surgery and actually conceiving the procedure. I mean, he saved Oral Hershiser's career uh, 
with shoulder surgery. And he was the guy who did knees before Andrews did knees. And so uh, Job was the man. And uh, everybody uh, who knew him uh, could not say enough about him either. Uh, the bedside manner and uh, the intelligence, uh, everything about him uh, was what you would want in a doctor. And it's no wonder he's the one who uh, came up with this great surgery 42 years ago that's truly one of the the best uh, orthopedic revolutions in the 20th century. So, Jeff, what's next for you? Obviously, uh, great work on uh, Yahoo. Uh, enjoyed your Bonds article recently. That was uh, that was interesting, the, the renaissance of Barry Bonds. Uh, anything you want to promote about the book, uh, things you got coming up, and, and anything that uh, you want the listeners to uh, check out? Just buy the book, man. <laughs> <laughs> you can get it at Amazon, it, uh, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, Books A Million. Uh, it's on iPad. It's on Kindle. Uh, it's on Audible. It's on Audiobook. And uh, it is in your nearby bookstore, which uh, I, I impel you to go to because bookstores are still pretty cool. And and there's probably a father reading the book right now while his son is throwing 237 pitches in the backyard as we speak. So oh, really? I, you, you know what? As long as they're not like maximum effort game pitches, uh, if you're throwing, I'm actually okay with you throwing. Strengthen your arm. Do it that way. Just stay out of games. Don't play your round baseball. Be smart. All right. Well, listen, Jeff, you're generous your time. Hey, have a great weekend. Thanks again, and uh, we'll catch up soon, okay? Sounds great, Mike. Thanks for having me, man. That's Jeff Passan. You can check out his book, The Arm, Inside the Billion Dollar Mystery, the Most Valuable Commodity in Sports. You can follow him on Twitter, at Jeff Passan, uh, Yahoo Sports, the baseball columnist. Stay right where you are. We're going to take a quick break. I'm going to give you some reaction to the book, uh, some quick thoughts that I have. I'm going to answer your questions about the week that was and the week that is ahead in Mets baseball. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Hi, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then you need to point your browsers to MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, and game-by-game breakdowns. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get all the latest news and opinion about the Mets from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled in one place. Check it out yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now and get Metsmerized today. We're back. Mike Silva talking Mets podcast. Final segment where I read some of the comments and questions from the audience. And uh, you guys didn't give me much today. You're all in a good mood, maybe because the weather's getting really nice. It's it's definitely spring out there. Maybe you're not interested uh, in anything other than controversy. Maybe you're tired. Maybe I'm not answering the questions in the prior weeks any good. But anyway, you, you, there was actually one comment, and it'll be the focus of this segment, that uh, re- involves Logan Verrett. And Zach Wheeler, and I think it was very well point, very great, great point. I dived into it a little bit, and I'll get to that in a minute. Just a, a couple of quick reactions to Jeff Passan, who I thought did a great job on that segment, and it's an interesting book. And truly, when you read the book, there's no conclusion from it, other than that there's a lot of stuff out there 
that teams do. And I don't think they really know what they're doing or why they're doing it to protect pitchers. And I think a lot of it is just CYA. It's corporate CYA. CYA, I've been saying that for a while. I still remember a couple of years ago, the, right before Zach Wheeler, the end of 2014, Wheeler got hurt the following spring. I think at one point it was it was uh, talked about to limit him to 100 pitches. And after talking to Mike Vorkanoff last week, it, it appears that the Mets knew that there was some uh, stuff going on with his ligaments and his elbow. So they knew there was issues. So maybe they were trying to limit him. And I remember – Wheeler was in a late August game, and at 100 pitches, Collins jumped out of the dugout, almost ready to grab Wheeler like he was going to get shot if he didn't get out there in, in a moment's notice. So I was like, oh, the pitch 101, pitch 102, does it, does it really matter? Uh, come on. I mean, it was, it was kind of silly, and, and I think we've gotten to that point where we really don't have an answer. But I think the point that Jeff made at the end about how things are done at the amateur level, and I piggybacked on that and talked about the college level, is really where this is all going. And I, I don't necessarily agree that competition is a bad thing for young people. And I'm talking about people not at the college level. I'm talking about high school or maybe at the Sandlot level. Competition is a good thing. Now, if you're, you're hurting kids and, and making them pitch back-to-back days and throw excessively to win a silly trophy, that's bad competition. But I think there should be competition. I'm never in favor of no scores, no trophy. Everyone gets a trophy. I'm not in favor of that. So I think that's where Jeff was going, and, and, and it really wasn't – to belabor that point and get into a, a separate debate really wasn't the point of the piece. But that's my take on it anyway. But at the college level, I don't know if everybody realizes, if you don't watch college baseball, go and, and look at some numbers. You could do a Google search on that or watch the College World Series. College coaches abuse their pitchers' arms. They do. There's no doubt in my mind. And I understand what Jeff was saying regarding the fact that now they're adults and you have some recourse as an adult to say, hey, I'm not doing that. But how many kids in college say no to their coaches? And how many kids at that age, 20, 21, 19, whatever it may be, are going to now say, I don't want to pitch? They don't want to look like that in front of their their teammates, in front of the guys that they've gone to, to battle with for sometimes three, four years. So I looked up and I found some information this is a, a column a couple of years ago at College Baseball Daily that pointed out that in his junior year, the year he was drafted in 2010, Matt Harvey uh, tossed more than 133 pitch more than 133 pitches twice that year, and then on five separate occasions between 121 and 132 pitches, uh, he did in the prior years, his freshman sophomore year, he had uh, maybe one uh, appearance prior to that. Of all of, of that kind of pitch count, uh, he didn't do anything his freshman year of that magnitude. And he also remember in, in, in from his freshman year on, he pitched in the Cape Cod League as well. So I don't know what kind of pitch counts they have in the Cape Cod League. So I don't know what went on there. So you're playing a lot of baseball. You're throwing a lot of innings. Here's this doesn't relate to Harvey, but the same UNC coach Mike Fox pitched a p- pitcher. His name is Kent Emanuel. After one day of rest. In the 2013 NCAA Chapel Hill Regional, Emmanuel pitched 7.2, uh, 7.2 thirds innings, 124 pitchers against Towson. He got a day of rest on Sunday. He pitched in a winner-take-all game against Florida Atlantic on Monday. He came in during the eighth inning, pitching a total of one and two-thirds ineffective innings uh, while tossing 51 pitches. So basically, the guy gets a day off, throws another 50 pitches after throwing 124 
uh, what was it, 100 and, yeah, 124 uh, just, just after one day. That's crazy. That's crazy. At that point, and I don't know, I'd have to look up to see what Ken Emanuel, what's he all about. And, 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 and the name doesn't ring a bell, so maybe it doesn't matter. But do you really want to put a kid's arm to win a tournament at risk? You can't find effective bullpen or other effective pitchers to be able to win your tournament? doesn't make sense to me. So there's a lot that goes into this. I think the amateur level is certainly where it's at. I think it's a great book. I think you should check it out. And uh, it's an interesting topic. And we could go on for four hours. You could do every podcast. We could do something along those lines. So anyway, let's get to the questions and comments. And really, you guys, again, I told you, you gave me nothing. But uh, on metamorizedonline.com, where you could go and, and there's a thread on all this stuff, uh, someone by the handle of Yo Mama. So good handle, Yo Mama. He has a little Mets logo as his handle. Brought up the idea that it may be interesting to potentially go with Logan Verrett over Zach Wheeler as time goes on. And he compared, he did basically a 162-game average of whip, walks per nine innings, and ERA for Zach Wheeler versus Logan Verrett. Now, Zach Wheeler has a far larger sample size than Logan Verrett. You know, he's got two years of starting, uh, 50 starts about, versus Logan Verrett, who has less than 10 in his career. But anyway, let's look at this. Comparing the whip, the walks, hits, innings versus innings pitch, Zach Wheeler's 1.339, Logan Verrett's just a slightly over 1, 1.022. Advantage Verrett. Walks per nine innings, 3.9 for Wheeler to 2.8 for Logan Verrett. So big difference in walks. And, and Zach Wheeler, one of the biggest issues with Zach Wheeler is the walks. Finally, the ERA, 3.5 for Zach Wheeler, 2.92 for Logan Verrett. So Verrett is... In the affirmative, uh, he's, the, he's the advantage in every category if you do that analysis over 162 games. Now, he goes on to cite uh, some kind of study, and I, I really don't want to get too deep into this, that, um, and I agree with one part, that Wheeler's downfall has always been too many moving parts in his delivery, too many walks, but he's also two inches taller than Verrett, and size matters. And he brings up a point that there is some studies that show that shorter pitchers are more consistent. Now, that goes against what everything I've ever heard from the way the teams draft. I mean, guys like John Franco, they never would get drafted today below six foot tall. They want all their starters to be six foot five, big, strong, have the, the, the body of, a, of, of an Adonis and a workhorse. I mean, guys in the six foot, forget it. You're not six foot tall. You could throw 100 miles an hour. I don't know if they're going to look at you. Maybe that's exaggerating, but you get the point. So um, apparently there was some kind of size comparison uh, between yesteryear and today, and that shorter players do better. But that, that's, let's forget that for a minute because that's diving very deep into it. Let's just look at this from a Wheeler-Verrett situation. Zach Wheeler, ha- you know, when I said this to Vorkanoff when he came on the show last week, I don't know if there's a spot in this rotation for, for him. Obviously right now there's, there's, there's a lot of baseball to play, and you don't know how healthy all these starters are going to stay. And Bartolo Colon could blow up at any moment. We saw it with Tom Glavin. Once you're north of 40, the clock's ticking. Eventually, Father Time's going to say, you need to come with me, and you're done. And unfortunately for Tom Glavin, it was the last game of the 2007 season. The Mets really needed that game. He came back and pitched for the Braves the following year. He was no good. His career was over. Once he got his 300th win, it was almost like Father Time said, yep, you got your day in the sun. Come with me, and his career was over after he was pretty effective for the Mets uh, going north of 40. 
Cologne one day could fall into that same category. Who knows? Nobody knows when Father Time's going to come. He always comes. He always wins. You just don't know when he's going to come. But the point is, you never have too much starting pitching. So I'm not trying to diminish Wheeler returning and maybe being a big component to the starting rotation later in the year. But I look at a guy who walks about four batters per nine. Yes, he had a, a good end of the season or second half, not so much September in 2014, but he was striking out about a batter per inning. So he's definitely got the ability to miss bats. But at four walks per nine, and that's always been my issue with Wheeler, is he puts a lot of runners on base with the walks. You need to be at nine, ten, over ten strikeouts per nine. You need to strike out almost a batter and a half per inning because you need to miss bats because once you put guys on base, if there's contact, that's how runs happen. And that's why you have a guy whose uh, who's ERA is about three and a half, uh, is fielding independent pitching. And for those that don't know what that means, really it just takes in your walks, your home runs, anything that a pitcher controls, hit by pitches, strikeouts, and just calculates what your ERA is with home runs, walks, hits, uh, no, no regular hits, home runs, walks, strikeouts, hit by pitch. And it matches up pretty well for Wheeler versus his regular ERA. So here's a guy that's going to have about three and a half ERA. He's going to have games where he just doesn't have it. He's going to walk a lot of guys, throw a lot of pitches. I don't know how deep he's going to get into games, although he did pitch 185 innings that year when he got hurt. So he definitely did um, show the ability to get to be a 200-inning workhorse out there. And Logan Verrett, let's face it, Logan Verrett right now has a small sample size. As a starter, uh, he's been pretty good. Uh, you know, Logan Verrett's, uh, uh, as a starter, has an ERA about 2.30 and very, very limited innings. So you can't really go too uh, crazy about that, 2.36. It's only a, a small sample. As a reliever, it's about a run uh, higher. This is a guy that's going to be a long reliever. Remember, this is a guy that the Mets basically let go as a Rule 5 pick. Baltimore let him go. Texas let him go. And then he came back, and he was a godsend late in the year when they needed him to plug in for Matt Harvey, especially that game in Colorado, which was his coming out party, him going out and be able to shut down the Rockies in Colorado when the Mets staff was getting so, even though they were winning, they were getting so beat up that weekend because of the way the games are played in that nutty ballpark and that nutty atmosphere. Logan Verrett's not a scrub. I understand that Wheeler is the hyped prospect, and he was the guy that they traded Carlos Beltran for. Logan Verrett was a third-round pick in 2011, so he's definitely not a guy that came out of nowhere. He's a guy that's been in the organization. And here's the thing. Logan Verrett has shown that he can strike out 8-9 or strike out batters at the same type of rate. Maybe not quite, maybe a skush below Wheeler, but he's not a guy that's just pitching to contact. He's striking out seven, eight batters per nine innings, and he did that in the minor leagues. And here's the thing. He's walking about a batter less per nine innings, about two and a half. So if he can do that, if he can go at the two and a half, and you start putting guys side by side, well, let me tell you something. Give me the guy that has a lower walk rate. Give me the guy that could you know, maybe pitch to a little bit of contact but doesn't put runners on base. Give me the guy that knows how to get away with navigating a ball game when he doesn't have his best stuff. I'm not sure Zach Wheeler could do that kind of thing. And here's the thing. I don't know how many innings he really has in him. Maybe you need him in the bullpen this year. Sure, you get him a start, spot start here or there, but let's face it. If all things go to plan, come postseason, is Zach Wheeler getting a start? Is he getting a start over Syndergaard? Is he getting a start over Harvey? Is he getting a start over Matz? Is he getting a start over DeGrom? No. And you really don't need more than four starters in the postseason. So one of those guys, you know, some series you might need three. In a short series, a five-game series, if you want to go two, you know, two with the top starter in there. You might not need four. 
So you can have starters in the bullpen. Do you, you know, again, you need Wheeler. You don't know. But what I'm saying is that's not too crazy to say that Logan Verrett is going to be a better starting pitcher for the Mets than Zach Wheeler. And, and think about it. He, they almost lost him for nothing. And Texas got rid of him because they put him in the bullpen. Nobody gave him a, nobody gave him a chance to start until the Mets did later in the year. So an interesting point by Yo Mama over at uh, MetsMorizeOnline.com. Wish it was a better handle. It's kind of an odd handle. But, um, you know, that's the situation. That's the case there. An interesting debate. And that's really the questions for the week. All the other, all the other things with fans basically saying, thank God the Mets had a great road trip. So um, interesting. You know, this is what happens with talk radio, with podcasts. If things are going well, everybody wants to just do accolades. They don't want to, you know, the talk radio is meant to be uh, an avenue, a conduit for the things that are controversial. And there's really right now no controversy, but there's always uh, something around the corner. Hey, let's take a quick break. Uh, final thoughts, wrapping up. As uh, we have another one here in the books with the uh, Talking Mets podcast, we'll be right back. Hi, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then you need to point your browsers to MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, and game-by-game breakdowns. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get all the latest news and opinion about the Mets from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled in one place. Check it out yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now and get Metsmerized today. Hey, I want to thank everybody for joining me today. I want to thank Jeff Passan. You can check him out on Twitter, at Jeff Passan. Check out his book, The Arm, Inside the Billion Dollar Mystery of the Most Valuable Commodity in Sports. Of course, you can check out the show at MetsmerizedOnline.com. Check it out on iTunes. Send me a tweet, at MikeSilverMedia. Go to MikeSilverMedia.com. Send me a personal note. Hope everybody has a great week. We're listening to the Talk of Mets podcast. I am your host, Mike Silva. See you next time. Head for the podcast.